Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Luke Diaz, VP of Customer Success at Clearbit. In this episode, we talked about why Luke made a career switch from working at a hedge fund to diving to customer success, and how Optimizely shifted their go-to-market strategy to fix churn and retention. We also discussed how AppsFlyer identifies strategic opportunities to drive expansion revenue, how you can show the impact of a team that doesn't earn revenue, and how Clearbit approaches their churn and retention challenges. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hey, Luke, welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. For the listeners, Luke is the VP of Customer Success at Clearbit, the marketing data engine for all your customer interactions. Uh, You can understand your customers, identify future prospects, and personalize every marketing and sales interaction with a data enrichment service. Prior to Clearbit, Luke started out his career in hedge funds, then moved on to a career in customer success, where he has been the director of customer success at AppsFlyer, Director of Strategic Partnerships at Elta Pharmacy, and Manager of Customer Success for US and APAC regions at Optimizely. My first question for you, Luke, is what drove you to make the switch from working for a hedge fund to a career in customer success? That's a great question. I think it was, I was just tired of wearing suits. I wanted to ditch the tie and join the exciting world of tech. That was basically it. And I wanted to explore a different type of company, a different type of industry. And so I made the jump from hedge funds to technology in about 2009. So that was the timing, yeah. Yeah, and what was like the biggest shock for you coming uh, from a hedge fund working into like into a technology company? Yeah, so we were a long short equity hedge fund in China and finance is a little stodgy. It's not particularly transparent. And the Facebook motto of move fast and break things, I think would terrify most people in finance. So the biggest shock was the radical transparency. I'll remember my first day at Optimizely and the founders were talking about how much cash they had in the bank. We're talking about everything at the most transparent level. And I think the radical transparency was the biggest shock. Yeah, I think that's one of the amazing things when you do work in a company like that as well, when you have the ability. Similarly, at Hotjar, where I used to work as well, they like literally everything was open book. So we had the company financials and the Google Sheets that everybody in the company had access at any time to take a look and understand like the performance. And 
it's a comforting feeling, like knowing how much transparency there is. There's no, nobody ever has to ask why just, and I think that's like a, it's a really cool place to be. So you've worked now as well, like I mentioned a few companies like Clearbit, AppsFlyer, Optimizely, all really well known brand names now as well in the markets and SaaS specifically as well. I want to touch today on like, the connections between the three and maybe some of the unique challenges you had in each one of them. So maybe we can start out with Optimizely. And I'm interested, what would you say is one unique challenge that you had at Optimizely when it came to churn and retention? And how did the team approach it? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge, I was at Optimizely for five years. And the number one challenge we saw on the churn and retention front was how do you help the customer build a program Experimentation, uh, I think most of the listeners might know who Optimizely is, but it's an A-B testing platform that evolved into being able to test server-side, do personalization. And the truth about it, Andrew, is that it takes a real program and resources and planning to execute an optimization, personalization program across your tech stack. So our biggest challenge was, how do you help the customer build that program it was bordering on professional services, which we eventually built, but it was very challenging to take teams with limited marketing folks that were very busy and guide them to introduce all this cross-functional structure. So it was that process of transformational change that was tremendously challenging. And if they didn't get up that program learning curve, they didn't have the ROI to renew and then we, retention would suffer. So that was our biggest challenge in my opinion. Yeah, I can definitely say it. Like, also, I think maybe having the level of sophistication required to run an experimentation program as well. Like, it's definitely a specific size of company that has the resources and the bandwidth to actually embark on, uh, on a really powerful experimentation program. And I think this is one of the things I actually noticed as well with uh, Optimizely, like following over the years, is you saw this significant shift uh, in the go-to-market strategy, where like in the early days, like it was still accessible. If you're a small business, you could use Optimizely to a certain degree, but then the pricing just it took a big shift and then it became very restrictive. And you really like had a target and you knew who you were going after. What were the motivations behind that? And I'm assuming as well, it's like just the market size and the, the problems we discussed now, but how did the company transition through that period? What were the, some of the conversations going, okay, uh, we see we have this problem. We really need to encourage and teach people how to use the service. There's only a limited number of companies that actually are at this place. What were some of those early discussions like? Yes, I think there's risk of me being a revisionist historian here. So I'll try and answer this as objectively as I, I can. At the time, we had three self-serve plans, bronze, silver, and gold. And everything else was enterprise. And I think at its core, we for those that aren't ha, had not experienced this, we basically deprecated our entire self-serve channel. And that was painful. We got a lot of backlash in the marketplace. I think at its core... It was a pricing and packaging problem. Our gold plan was a phenomenal deal. It was $3.99 a month, and you got basically everything that an enterprise customer would get with a little less traffic and more customer support. And it was just a real, it, it was the bane of our sales team's existence. Like so many people were like, no, nah, we'll just stay on the gold plan. So it was cannibalizing enterprise sales. And I think the dirty little secret of, of experimentation is you need quite a bit of traffic to reach statistical significance in a reasonable amount of time. So 
no one at Optimizer was like, oh, we can't wait to screw all these like smaller mid-sized companies. We, we definitely wanted to, but we thought it was better for the business and better for like intellectual honesty, if you will, that experimentation isn't for everyone. And so that was a huge pivot for us because our initial mission was let's democratize experimentation. We wanted to bring it to the masses. And due to some statistical challenges, if you're doing stats right, statsig is really hard to get, especially if your your changes are minimal or modest. So long story short, I don't want to mince words. The retention rates, the unit economics of bronze, silver, and gold were terrible. They were not a healthy business. We were not confident building the future of Optimize on that on that foundation. And Enterprise was just doing so well that we put all of our chips in that direction. That makes a lot of sense as well. And I like how you framed it as a pricing and packaging uh, problem more than anything else. Obviously, like I think like having the right uh, pricing that's fitting the right markets with the right products is just like one of the, the key pillars that needs to get nailed efficiently. And you mentioned you totally deprecated the self-serve plan. Like how did that go like from a customer success standpoint? So obviously it's almost like hundred percent churn I'm assuming there, like was yeah. there any plan to try and save any accounts, move them over to enterprise? What did that look like? There was, and it was brutal. It was a very hard process. We were right in the thick of it. We were trying to sunset those plans while also giving them the option to join the enterprise uh, plan, what we called platinum at the time. The conversion rate was rather low, as you might ex- expect. I think we saw a lot of customers go to VWO, Maximizer, and if they were in e-commerce, they might have gone elsewhere. But I think we just gave a lot of the, our long tail to competitors. They might have gone to Google Optimize or Google Content Experiments for those back in the day. But yeah, I think comp- competitors benefited. Very few con- actually converted. And I think the brand took a hit. It was really hard for the brand to sustain that as we continued to focus. It was really a focusing endeavor to exclusively serve larger companies that had the resources and the sophistication to attempt to do experimentation and personalization properly. Yeah. Like I think the conversations that must have happened during that period must have been pretty intense and pretty nerve wracking. Cause I think like you're essentially killing off a big portion of your business, knowing that for the long term it's going to be better, like from a brand perspective as well, because you don't want to be taking people's money who's not really right for this, from like you mentioned the statistics statistic perspective. But at the same time, yes. I'm pretty sure that group was fueling some of the growth as well. So Although they might not have been long-term retained customers, they would still be able to help you drive growth uh, from that perspective. So how did the team like go about weighing up this decision? Like, What were some of the things that you considered before making the decision uh, to say, okay, let's just cut it? Um, it was primarily driven by unit economics and the need to grow quicker with more focus. This decision was made well above my pay grade as I was leading a customer success uh, team at the time, but this was a board level decision. One of those crucible moments in the, to use a term I've heard a lot in venture capital. And I think I heard that with Sequoia, but this was a crucible decision and everyone on the board weighed in. The entire leadership team had very strong opinions. It was hotly debated. I would love to have had a different story to tell. Yeah, like a GitHub or a Twilio or a Stripe who's successfully been able to serve the long tail while building a thriving enterprise business. It's just really hard. But ultimately, this was a board level decision to uh, strategically move forward. Yeah. Yeah. 
Nice. And then you mentioned also one other thing, I think, in the sense like moving towards like a service driven business as well and adding that service layer to the business. This is an interesting perspective, I think, because it also not only helps like onboard customers and activate, but it's also another revenue generating uh, model. So like how much did customer success play in this service layer? And what was the strategy behind getting that set up? We quickly realized that in order to help larger, mid-sized and larger companies do better, we needed to build professional services. My good friend, Janan Pang, who was leading the Solution Architects team at the time, he got an opportunity. Hey, Janan, build professional services at Optimizely. Janan might be a familiar name for some of your listeners as he also leads the San Francisco Customer Success Meetup group which if you haven't joined, I couldn't recommend more. He's currently a director of customer success at Slack. So this was a task for Janan to build a net new function. I believe some of the early goals were, let's carve out some of the solutions architects. Let's get a good project manager in there. And let's try and run this at PL break-even to simply offset the costs of the people that we're taking to deliver professional services. So I believe it was initially ran to just be a PL break-even, a million bucks in payroll. Let's try and carve out a million bucks in revenue for ProServe just to offset the cost. And most importantly, let's learn what are the project management skills and the technical and strategic resources needed to help a customer go from zero to one with experimentation and personalization. At times, that meant sending a solution architect on-site for a, to a customer in New York, a large media company, for a week and a half to help them set up personalization on the homepage. And that's, uh, that's the degree of heavy lifting we were, were, we were willing to do. And doing things that don't scale to begin with to figure out the roadmap and uh, the path forward, yeah? Yeah, the old uh, Paul Graham playbook for sure. Exactly. <laughs> Cool. So let's jump forward then a little bit in your career, like moving to AppsFlyer now. And maybe as well, you want to give a little bit of overview what AppsFlyer does for the audience. But what would you say is like one of the unique challenges you had at AppsFlyer from a customer success uh, perspective? Sure. So AppsFlyer is an, a phenomenal company, Israeli-based. They are a mobile measurement provider. So they're essentially an SDK that helps mobile marketers know where their installs and their marketing efforts are, where the installs are coming from. And they are this very much behind the scenes technology that is phenomenal in terms of unit economics. It's something that once the SDK is in there, you basically run the entire mobile business off it. So it's a MMP in the parlance of the industry. The unique challenge there was my CSM team actually did not own renewals. So we were purely technical enablement and customer service. So the question becomes, how do you show the impact of a team that doesn't own revenue? And I imagine a lot of your listeners might resonate with this. If it is a CSM team that's more focused on enablement in the relationship than driving revenue impact. So that was the biggest challenge. And we got pretty clever with how we quantified the quality of the relationship. So the number one battle cry from Ziv Peled, who is an amazing chief customer officer and someone I admire greatly. He was the biggest champion for creating honest advocacy-based relationships with our customers. And he was able to build out a system where we could actually quantify that. And so the challenge is how do you take relationships and make them a little more, how do you go beyond net promoter score and make it 
more more real uh, and more tangible and more operational than a simple survey result. Yeah, we actually had Ziv uh, on the show. We we chatted a little bit about that, and he's also asked to have the episode 100. So we definitely have him back on the show again uh, oh, to hear phenomenal. a little bit more. About, I look yeah. forward to listening. I, I really enjoyed that episode as well with him. Yeah. So you would say from your perspective, AppsFlyer, that was one of the challenges uh, that you had from a customer success standpoint was really just trying to, how do you show the value within the organization that customer success provides? Uh, so that's it? Precisely. And I'll also mention it was one of the more technical CSM teams I've ever led. It is a very technical product and you have to know to a high degree of fidelity. So it's also how do you take folks and encourage those job skills to be able to work with massive quantities of data. So it's the CSM team also skewed highly technical. They were all very dangerous with data and Python. And uh, I think that was a unique challenge to recruit for and also uh, train them on. Given it's the nature, like of the you're hiring like a group of analysts uh, to do customer success, yeah. Indeed, a, a very capable team with uh, high skill sets. Interesting, interesting. And then, like from a, a churn and retention side of things, so I think definitely AppsFlyer, I'm sure, and I know just uh, the net retention is really strong due to the fact that, like you mentioned, it really becomes a backbone once you install. It's very difficult to pull out because it really helps uh, drive all your marketing initiatives on the other side. What did that look like in terms of churn and retention? What were some of the focus points that were pain points for your team that you you tried to focus on and improve? I'll be quite candid. Having worked at quite a few SaaS companies, I have never seen a company like AppsFlyer operating at nine-figure revenue scale with as low of churn as we had. While it was certainly a focal point and we did postmortems and learn from the customers that left, usually to a competitor because MMP is something you need, the churn was so small and so marginal that it really wasn't a key focus the business, the underlying unit economics of the business was so fantastic that most of my team's effort were focused on how do we help them with the product? How do we build relationships? How do we, when we used to do events, I think they, their event budget was very strong and we would do these amazing events to build in-person relationships as well. I desperately miss that, that era in the COVID era. But yeah, the, the effort was very much not about churn mitigation or even retention because the product was so strong. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about that, I think with Ziv a little bit more, the shift and the focus, I think of the success team as well as more, like you say, building those relationships. Strength. I think all the things you mentioned though, do aid in uh, like churn mitigation, but it was just coming from a different perspective. It's really just about like, how do we make sure we're maximizing value and we like have that customer centricity more than anything else, like underlying business value that comes as a result of it. Precisely. One of the metrics at AppsFlyers, the CSMs were able to drive were just identifying opportunities where the customer can benefit from evaluating more products. For example, their fraud product, which I consider best in class, was one of the fastest growing products. I think it got to $10 million in under a year or something. It was insane. And we would just, the CSM role was like, hey, do you have like any fraud issues with your, your installs in EMEA? And they're like, yes, <laughs> like a third or fraud. And we're like, maybe you should look at our fraud products. So CSMs were instrumental in driving upsell opportunities for the sales team. And I think that was a big impact on the business and net retention. Very cool. So moving now then to current uh, day, Clearbit. What would you say is one of the unique challenges you have with Clearbit when it comes to channel retention? 
We and, and maybe let us know a clear bit as well, because I gave yes. a little bit of intro, but uh, a little bit more detail be good too. Sure, your your elevator pitch was fantastic. You should you should join Straight our team. off the website. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that sounded very on brand. Yeah, Clearbit is a data provider. And so we have clean data on company and contacts. And we have a platform where you could pipe that data into other systems like Salesforce, Marketo, Pardot. We call that the enrichment product. But we really want to be a platform to power your growth engine. We found that our product works particularly good with product-led growth companies that have a lot of website traffic and have a needle in the haystack problem where they have a lot of inbound interest and they need to capitalize on that interest in an intelligent way. So at our core, Clearbit is a data provider. I'd say the churn, the retention challenges we faced are actually related to the nature of the product. Consuming APIs and the moment that that enriched record in Salesforce enters another system, we lose touch of it. And it, as a result, it's hard to show the business impact when you're powering other systems. So it's a little bit of an agency challenge for this customer success team at Clearbit. At Optimizee, you could show them the result of an experiment. And you're like, okay, this drove 2.3 increase in conversion. Average conversion is $70. ROI is X. But at Clearbit, it takes a little bit more creativity. And when you go through a pandemic, when every CFO started striping their budgets, we were in a precarious position. I think we managed it quite well, but it was just tough to show concrete impact in ROI on the spend. And so that continues to be a theme that we're focused on and something we're trying to integrate and better build out and showcase in the product while also giving CSMs tools to make that value impact ROI story more tangible, more concrete. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that with Clearbit as well, using it in the past in a couple of different companies. I, I think it's like one of those things that adds quite a lot of value, like having that knowledge, having that insight, but you don't really relate back to that insight, like when you close that deal or when you set up that marketing automation that sort of drives that, that close. How do you go about like communicating the value? So how are you measuring the ROI for Clearbit when you communicate to your customers? Yeah, I'd say it, it differs very, it differs uh, a lot by product. So we have an ads product that's in the market. It's doing quite well over a million or 2 million in revenue. And it basically lets you do business-like targeting on Facebook, Instagram. So you can create these business audiences and then target that, target them on social media to show them various offers. The ROI there is more tangible because it's the ad funnel. And I think a lot of effort has been spent quantifying the efficacy of ads and uh, top of funnel metrics. For other products like Reveal, which is on-page IP intelligence, it comes down to form conversion, it comes down to just the general behaviors of users when they come to your site. Are they engaging and so forth? So we have some on-site metrics that are useful there with our Reveal and Forms product. And then I'd say the one that is more uh, a little more nebulous, but we have to do more work to tell the story is enrichment. So enrichment is where the data goes into other systems. We just did an internal interview with uh, Bamboo HR and some other folks. And we asked them that question. We're like, what's the ROI of Clearbit? And they're like, 
it allows us to do awesome stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't take that to your CFO, but it becomes a challenge of what is that stuff and what is the impact of said workflows? If your time to lead, time to touch the lead goes from 10 days to four, what does that extrapolate out to? If more interesting opportunities are being routed to your enterprise team, what is the value and impact of that incremental pipeline that we generated for your enterprise sales team? So we have to be more curious. We have to ask better questions to truly understand the pain and impact on the enrichment side. So that's where a lot of the challenge lies. Yeah, I can see that as well. And it's like, you need to be a little bit of a more of a detective trying to see and understand where the value lies. But I think you mentioned a few use cases, and I think it would probably be very similar for a lot of companies, like the value that is driving. So just a matter of trying to figure out which one of these use cases is playing out at each company. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. Cool. So now I want to bring it all together. So we started out talking about optimizely, like pricing and packaging was probably one of the biggest challenges there, moving up markets, trying to figure out who the customers are needing to build like this service layer to actually educate and help uh, get them there. At AppsFlyer, a little bit different, uh, really strong retention. There it was more about how do you communicate the value within the organization from a customer success perspective. And now at uh, Clearbit, how do you communicate the value to your customers that the product's providing as well? What would you say is one of the, the common threads between all three of them when it comes to the challenge that you had when it came to general retention? That's a great question. I think there's two. The first one is, and there's a quote that I just absolutely love, and I think it really applies to customer success in general, but anticipation is the ultimate power. And if you can anticipate things happening, whether it's customer doing really well or customer having challenges or becoming a churn risk, the ability to anticipate that event with adequate time to take action is this key uh, Rubik's cube we're all trying to figure out. And you can come at it from such different angles that I think it becomes a really fun challenge that I saw at Optimizely. I saw it at AppsFlyer, even though the churn was marginal, we, we wanted to obviously address it. And then at Clearbit, we've been trying to tackle that same challenge as well. So if you believe that anticipation is the ultimate power, how do you get better at predicting what customers are doing or will do well or what customers are at risk? So that's one. And the other is just, what is the role of customer success in the company? I think you and I share a bias that step one in Silicon Valley, when you have venture capital backed companies, it's grow at all costs. But then we're starting to see some of these unicorns with poor unit economics Step two of keep the customer and make them successful sometimes isn't, I think it should be priority number one. And I think that's how you build uh, an industry defining company. So I just, raising the profile of customer success has always been a challenge for me. And I'm excited for unit economics, particularly CRC and the CAC to LTV like customer success can own that LTV part of the unit economics equation. And I think how you tell that story and how you do that while keeping customers at the center of the company and not on the fringes is a big challenge that I've, I've encountered at every company I've worked at to with the end goal of 
raising the profile of customer success and by extension customers, which should be the very reason you wake up in the morning and build awesome products. So those two come to mind. Yeah, I definitely agree. We share this bias. Like point number one, I think prevention is better than churn. I think that's uh, like a nice way to sum it up and really figure out what are those uh, inputs that might lead to churn at the end of the day. If there was more time, I'd love to dive into that. So maybe for a future follow-up session. But, and then the other thing, like you said, I think it's just like really the shift and the mindset and the focus and like how much value retention gets within organizations. I definitely say, obviously, I have a bias in the people I interview and uh, the weight is typically towards retention side of things. Mm -hmm. But definitely within the industry, I think a lot more companies need to catch up and realize like the compounding impact that retention does have and the focus. And then it's not just all about growth at all costs at the top of the funnel, but really focusing on that bottom of the funnel and keeping customers around longer has a much bigger compounding impact on the business long term. Cool. We're running up on time. I want to ask you one question. Ask every guest that joins the show. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now that you join a new company. Channel retention is not doing good at this company. The CEO comes to you and says, hey, Luke, like we really need to get some results fast. We need to turn things around. We need to improve uh, this problem we have with churn. What would you want to do with your first 90 days at this company to try and make a dent? I have the benefit of hindsight here. I'd say the things that I've implemented that have had the biggest impact on retention and churn have to do with instituting uh, simple processes done exceptionally well. And so one thing that I would do in my first 90 days is start a red accounts meeting. This is essentially a pipeline review of your unhealthy customers that aren't doing well. I've rolled that out at Clearbit and it's helped us at least get a handle on where's the risk, cordon it off so we can talk about it. And it's a weekly meeting that's two hours long and it's, it can be brutal. And I know a lot of people have heard of Red Accounts Meeting. I'm not claiming this is my idea or novel in any regard, but just the basic process of reviewing your unhealthy customers weekly for two, three hours has just produced so much crowdsourced creativity and just increased the rigor upon which we evaluate each Red Account. And I think it also empowers the CS team to have a larger voice and talk about that risk on a broader scale. Very cool. What are some of the things that you're reviewing in this point? What are some of the questions that are being asked by the team? And like, how do people get into this, this red conversation? Yeah, the criteria for being becoming a red account is uh, it falls into three buckets, product, value, or people. We've found that Clearbit's particularly susceptible to stakeholder turnover. So when a head of marketing ops or another key stakeholder leaves, we need to desperately find a new owner. That's the people risk. Value has to do with, are they getting the ROI and using it? And product is like, is the product delivering on the promise? Is it, are they having some bugs? Is there data quality issues? So it falls into those three categories. And if they meet that, they become a red account. There's also one that is just called intuition. I think good CSMs just have a good intuition about customers. Like they haven't heard back on emails. So there's also one where the CSM could be like, hey, I'm paranoid about this account. I want to talk about it. So there's a kind of a safety valve too to make sure we're including all the risk there. Nice. You've got quite a solid criteria that you run by and then uh, that list gets filtered. Very cool. So last question then maybe for today is what's one thing that you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? Oh, that's great. One thing that I've learned 
that I really wish I knew is that you can quantify churn, um, the churn risk and detect it in a much more scientific way than I ever thought was possible. When I started, I'm like, churn's just when the customer tells you they're having a, not a great time. But as, a, as my career evolved and I spoke to more, I started as a CSM, I realized that a lot of what they, the customer tells you manifests in various metrics that you can use to burn, build health scores and churn prediction models. So I wish I had, over, I wish I had a, a stronger appreciation for how scientific you can get nowadays, especially with amazing tools uh, like data science. I wish I knew that when I started 12 years ago about how quantitative you can make churn. And if you can quantify it, you can manage it so much more effectively uh, than the qualitative assessments good CSMs do. So I wish I had, had a, a, a more profound there. appreciation. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And definitely, I think over time comes, I think, because customer success itself is still its infancy. So the longer like this role, this like, what do you call career department within a company team, mm -hmm. the more and more time by goes by, more and more insights will come out of it. And this is one of these things, I think, like you said, that maybe like 10, 15 years ago, wasn't even a thing. People weren't really thinking about it now. And more and more teams are implementing health scores, engagement scores. Like, And I'm excited to see what's going to come next when it comes to customer success. Because I think like the teams are just scratching the surface now of what's possible as well and what ownership they have and the metrics that they're tracking and following. So... Lastly for today, is there anything, any final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners? Like how can they keep up to speed with the work that you're doing? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to continue the conversation. I do a lot of work on my blog and I post a lot of data-driven learnings about customer success. So that's, it's DBT Ventures or Do Big Things is what DBT stands for, but dbtventures.com and try and keep myself honest with some book summaries and just doing, trying to figure out customer success and the leadership thereof. So I'd love to keep in touch through DBT Ventures or just sending me a note on LinkedIn. I think customer success, to your point, Andrew, is rapidly evolving. And the tools we have at our disposal, I think would make our former selves blush. It's pretty amazing what we can do these days. So I welcome open questions and discussions offline as well. Very cool. And we'll definitely drop uh, that link in the show notes as well. So if you want to check out DBT Ventures, or obviously I think it should be pretty straightforward to spell too. But yeah, thanks so much, Luke. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today and wish you best of luck now going forward. Thanks, Andrew. Big fan of the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.